Alrighty. Well, if you want to turn with your in your Bibles with me to Second Timothy, uh, chapter two. Not an exposition of this passage, but nevertheless, because it is the Lord's day and we are gathered to hear His word. Never want to preach a sermon where the word is not preeminent, and so we begin with a reading of Scripture. Even though I'm not going to exegete the text, but talk about. Reformed theology today, I still wanted to ground us, our thinking at least, in this passage that has a lot to do with the Reformation. Listen to what the Word of God says, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. This is what the Word of God says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David, according to my gospel. Love the way that Paul takes ownership of that gospel, and the way that we all should. For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of the elect. So that they also may obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father... We ask that you would just really enrich our understanding of the faith. As Jude declares, the faith once for all delivered to the saints by understanding the tradition in which we stand. May it enrich our understanding of Scripture. May it enrich our understanding of what Paul means here by the Word of God is not chained. And I pray that the same prayer that Paul prayed in Thessalonians, that the word of the Lord would run swiftly among us and that it would spread through us. This is our prayer, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are so many different avenues to take when thinking about the Reformation. I thought, I'm not going to simply comment on one passage of Scripture, but rather... My dear brothers and sisters, I want to give us a holistic view of why it is that we are in a Reformed church. This is a Reformed church, if you didn't know that by now, as I see people stand up and start walking out. No, I'm just joking. Hopefully you know that by now. And for good reason, for good reason. I want to talk today about what I have entitled the Ten Canons of the Reformation. Cannons as in battle cannons. Cannons as in a battle cry, really, of the Reformed faith. It's been 500 years since the Reformation. 500 years is a long time. And uh, we're on the eve of that anniversary this year. But it has been a very, very long time. And if you are not a student of church history, you can very, very quickly... Uh, miss the importance of the Reformation. And though this is not going to be a historical or a history of church, a lesson on church history per se, it is important to understand that as the Reformation broke, the church was in captivity under Roman Catholic oppression and darkness. Thousand years of dark ages. Why did they call it the dark ages? Because The Roman Catholic Latin Mass had held the church and the Word of God, really, in captivity. The Latin Mass 
made it so that the church became increasingly over the centuries more and more biblically illiterate, ultimately iconoclastic, which meant that they needed pictures to understand the teaching of the Bible because many of them could not even read during the time of the Reformation, let alone understand theology for themselves. It was the glorious work of the pre-reformers, both John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, that laid the foundation for the vernacular translation of the scriptures into other languages. That really opened up the door for the Reformation, and God used that. But of course, uh, the papacy did not like that in any way whatsoever. The Catholic Church uh, and the magisterium of the Catholic Church uh, basically taught that you couldn't understand the Scriptures apart from the magisterium of the church, the Pope, the papacy, the priesthood, the bishops. You had, you had to have their interpretation or you didn't have the interpretation. The Reformers believed in the priesthood of all believers. Uh, they believed that you were a priest unto your God and that you could understand the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, that was really the infamous words of William Tyndale, you remember when he was debating a Catholic clergyman, this is what he says in defiance to the Pope. William Tyndale said, I defy the Pope and his laws. If God spares my life however many years, I will cause a boy who drives the plow to know the Scriptures more than you. The Reformation is founded upon the Scriptures. It is because of the Scriptures being liberated, really unleashed through the Reformation that the Reformers understood that a dawn had taken place, a new dawn of biblical light. As a matter of fact, uh, the Calvinists after Luther and those following Calvin were famous for the, the slogan, post tenebras lux, a Latin phrase meaning after darkness, light. They saw that the church was held in centuries of popish darkness. And it was the Word of God that was liberating the Word of God more than any traditions of Rome, more than any man-made system of self-righteousness. The Reformers found and really had a staunch commitment to the power, the clarity, the, the sufficiency, and the tenacity of Scripture. The Westminster Confession opens up with these words, The authority of the Holy Scriptures, for which we ought to believe and obey, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. From the Reformation, led by this unflinching commitment to the authority of Scripture, came several very, very important historical positions and doctrinal formulations that I want to get into today, the Ten Canons of the Reformation. These are the doctrines of grace and the five solas of the Reformation. So today in my outline, I actually have 10 points. So fasten your seatbelt. I want to break these up into two categories, really the first five canons. 
and then the second five canons. But the first five deal with the doctrines of grace. I just want to remind you because the doctrines of grace are so teleological in nature. They focus mainly on the nature of God's work of redemption. And historically, they have been summed up with the acronym TULIP. How many of you all know TULIP? They are also Christological because Calvinism is redemptive in its focus in Christ uh, and redemption comes through Christ. But beginning with total depravity, for example, the acronym TULIP stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now, theologians today squabble with that acronym and they want to redefine terms. That's fine. Uh, I think that's fine. Uh, uh, you know, a reform, another reform slogan is reformed and always reforming. So uh, they, the reformers didn't claim infallibility. Uh, it's not like we can't build upon what they said or that we can't even disagree with what they said. But we'll, we'll, we'll stick with TULIP for now because it, because it, it just it functions so, so easy. Uh, but the first one, of course, being total depravity. The reformers understood man to be enslaved. See, contrary to Rome that had essentially a Pelagian view of the will, which meant that the will of man was free, the reformers saw passages in Scripture like Romans chapter 8 that says that the, the mind of a man is hostile to God and is not even able to obey the law of God. They saw that as a description of what came to be known as total depravity. The idea that man is depraved in all of his constitution, every aspect of man, his mind, his heart, his emotions, his will, his body, everything has been affected by the fall. And therefore, total depravity ultimately had to do with a a, a divergence of views on the will. Matter of fact, Martin Luther said that the central controversy of the Reformation was not election. It was not justification by faith. According to Luther, the central controversy of the Reformation was the nature of the will. He understood how significant and foundational that really was. Total depravity called for Christ's meritorious righteousness to be conferred upon sinners who in and of themselves were unable, no matter how many prayers, how many indulgences, how much penance, how much works they did, were incapable of earning a right standing before the tribunal of God. They needed a foreign righteousness. A righteousness not of their own. We'll get more to that. But the next thing was election. This is where the the Reformation really also was groundbreaking. Prior to the the Reformation, we have some theologians like Augustine and John Gottschalk who uttered and articulated various aspects of divine election, sovereign election. But it really was on the heels of the Reformation that election became crystallized, formalized. It became expanded. Guess what? When you unleash the Word of God and when you allow people to study the Word of God for themselves, guess what Guess what you're going to read? You're going to read chapters in the Bible like Romans chapter 9 where it talks about God's election independent of whether the creature does good or evil. It doesn't depend on that. But as we know from Romans 9-11, it depends on God who calls. 
Therefore, the reformers saw election as unconditional. God chooses on the basis of his infinite pleasure and his infinite wisdom alone, only. Well, we'll get to the alone statements in a minute. Being united to Christ through election, God works redemption in Christ perfectly and harmoniously with His decree of election. Here again, God is the final author, the perfecter of man's redemption through Jesus Christ. God sends His Son to accomplish the mission of securing God's elect, His chosen race, His particular people, His holy nation, His royal priesthood, His temple, His church, the atonement of Jesus. Now, of course, you know where this leads us. What did Jesus do and who did he do it for? The Reformation also gave us the knowledge that the work of Christ on the cross was not an accident. It was not a cosmic gamble in the hopes that some somewhere would believe in the gospel. It was not that. God was not gambling with fate But in fact, God was paying a payment. God was giving a ransom. God was purchasing a particular people for himself through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And they saw and they and they went to passages like Ephesians chapter 1 where there you see the perfect unity and the Godhead, Father choosing, Son accomplishing, Spirit applying so that they saw that God's perfect wisdom was displayed in the atonement of Jesus Christ. This also meant that upon the moment of salvation, God's people would perfectly and effectually be called. And this leads us to irresistible grace. What does it mean when it, when, when reformed people talk about grace being irresistible? Doesn't Paul say in Acts to the Jews, you always resist the grace of God. It's a complete opposite sounding of what irresistible grace says. Well, that is not at all what the reformers meant, that we never resist God's grace. As a matter of fact, they would admit we all resist God's grace. Uh, we are born not only resisting the grace of God, but hating the grace of God. So that is not what they're talking about. When they speak of irresistible grace, they're speaking of an irresistible call. That is to say that there are two calls to the gospel. There is a public call to the gospel. That is, there's a general call to the gospel, what's called the external call of the gospel. And this is the work that we all do in evangelism when we preach and proclaim the gospel to the lost. We are engaging in the external call of the gospel. But you and I never ever engage in the internal call of the gospel. You and I do not, do not produce the irresistible call to the gospel or of the gospel because that call is a salvific call it means that if god calls you in a saving way you will come you will come jesus taught this more than anybody john chapter 6 verse 37 and following all that the father gives to me will come he will raise them up on the last day verse 44 And many, 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 many passages of Scripture It made the gospel of Jesus a powerful summons for God's elect. It was not just an offer. It was life to life for God's people, even if it meant 
death to death for the non-elect. And that is where, you know, as I was thinking about this, this passage, I thought, you know, how many folks in our church really understand and have really grappled and wrestled with the doctrines of grace? I know for me, it took me years uh, to come to some theological conclusions about the doctrines of grace. And I have had the glorious opportunity throughout the years, I've had the glorious opportunity of leading people through the doctrines of grace and they accept the doctrines of grace and they say what Spurgeon has said when he understood the doctrines of grace. Spurgeon says, I felt myself to have grown from a child to a man. Because the, the doctrines of grace are humbling as they build you up. Finally, having been called by God, the reformers believed wholeheartedly that God's power was there to keep His people to the end, to redeem and obtain what God had purchased. See, this is the point that is so important about redemption, that redemption, again, is as we sung, He will not lose us. He will hold us fast. What it means is that when God purchases something, He will procure it. He will obtain it. God doesn't put something on layaway and then forget forgets that He bought it. No, no, no. Whatever God purchases, He gets. So if He purchases us by His blood, as First Peter says in First Peter chapter 1, verse 18, that we were redeemed or purchased by the blood of Jesus, guess what? Then God is going to obtain what He purchased. He's going to redeem it. He's going to make it His. He will not forget it. The pers- but however, let me be quick to uh, also reiterate this, that the Reformers understood that God did not just ordain the outcome of perseverance, But he also ordained the means of perseverance. And so the reformers were the first ones to point out that biblical perseverance, what it looks like, what it looks like for you to persevere is that you will have a particular ardor, zeal, passion, holiness, a habitual life of obedience to the gospel to the very end. That is the chosen means that God has for perseverance. Now, That's the first five canons of the Reformation. But I want to focus a bit closer on the second. And that is what has come to be known as the five solas of the Reformation. Of course, the Reformers believed in the doctrines of grace. ultimately came through them. But they also wanted to move, and they did move, the whole church from essentially a man-centered understanding of life to a God-centered understanding of all things. They were liberated from all of the traditions of Rome. The reformers were ready to let Scripture speak for itself. And when they did that, they came to the sound conclusion that the final authority in all things for faith and practice is the Word of God. Listen to what Joel Beakey, a Reformed theologian that I depended on very much for this sermon. He says this, Reformers li- were liberated by the Bible and from the Catholic hierarchy and, the least, uh, and they were re- uh, liberated in at least three ways. Number one, vernacular translation, that's what we talked about with Tyndale and with Wycliffe, such as Luther's German Bible, by exposition, expository preaching. So, so prior to the Reformation, there wasn't a whole bunch of MacArthur's walking around. <laughs> 
There wasn't a whole bunch of verse-by-verse preaching. What it was, it was a Catholic Mass in Latin. You came and listened. Many people didn't understand what the priest was saying in Latin. And you somehow, sort of by osmosis, were to receive the grace of God. It was like a magical potion spoken over the people. What the Reformation did is that it unleashed the power of the Scriptures as they began going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and for the first time in church history, at least systematically, on large scale, the Word of God was being exposited. Incredible. Well, guess what that led to? Utter revival. That's what it led to. And that's what it can do still today. Joe Beakey says, This was recommenced by Zwingli. And by the straightforward grammatical historical exegesis of Calvin's commentaries, they taught that the Bible is the rule of faith that guides our intellect and the rule of practice that guides our daily duties. Scripture is God speaking to us as a father speaks to his children, Calvin said. That's so good. For the reformers then... Ultimate spiritual illumination was rooted in Scripture, not the Pope and not the magisterium of the church. Later, formidable opponents to Rome, including John Owen and the Puritans, expounded on that very thing. Again, Beakey says, The authority of the Word of God comes from itself as God's Word. The Scripture for John Owen and the Puritans is self-evidencing. It has an innate efficacy of its author listen to that scripture has an innate efficacy efficacious it is effectual it is productive why because of its author because it's the word of god light and power constitute the self-evidencing nature of scripture as the word of god light like god in scripture does not require proof of authenticity how do you know the light is shining turn it on it's able to shine So Owen says, the scripture is a light. It is a glorious light, a shining light, an illuminating light compared and preferred above the light of the sun. Amen. Consequently, the church must hold the light out ministerially, not authoritatively. In other words, Joel Beakey says, we may bear the light, but we are not the light. And once... The reformers came to hear the voice of the Father in the Word of God. They deduced several other foundational truths that refuted and contradicted Roman Catholic error. These became the pillars of the Reformation. And these were captured by the five solas that deal deal with Scripture, as we've looked at, sola scriptura, grace, faith, Christ, and glory. So let's move on to the next one, which is sola gratia. Now, the Latin word sola, not to be confused with the Latin word solo. Uh, Solo means only. Sola means final or alone. Uh, Matter of fact, somebody uh, was visiting our church uh, for a short time, and this individual was given to solo scriptura. Every time I was having a conversation with him, it just seemed like if I quoted an author, I referenced... John Piper, MacArthur, Spurgeon, he was very quick to remind me, yes, but that's not the Word of God, brother. As if I thought they were the Word of God. (laughs) That is sort of a virtual solo scriptura view, saying that believers can only go to the Bible. 
Oh, we can go to other sources so long as we understand what sola means. That all those other sources, all those other theologians, all those other books are, subs- are, 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 are subsumed beneath the authority of Scripture and defined by it. The solas really are also redemptive in nature. Look at sola gratia. Grace was the final ground of justification. That is the conclusion that Martin Luther came to. It was not faith, but grace that was the basis of justification. Now, please understand that. That the ground or the basis of justification is not faith alone. It is grace alone. Big difference. Matter of fact, in the Bible, the Greek text, the Greek language never gives a grammatical construction that would suggest that faith is the basis of salvation. It is always instrumental. It is never speaking of the basis. That's very important. Uh, I would quote to you the text, but it's a long, lengthy uh, passage, but someone has actually, I think it's Robert Raymond, has actually done the, the grammatical construction and showed the combination of grammar that has to happen in order for faith to be the ground of our salvation. It is not. And the Scripture never once, under the inspiration of the Spirit, never once allows an author of the Bible to slip into that grammatical construction. Amazing. The superintendence of God over His Word. Grace is the ground. It is all in accordance with grace. From start to finish, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, we are saved by grace. And it is grace alone, meaning nothing else is the final ground. Not works, not our merit, not the Pope, not the sacraments of the church, not the prayers of the saints. Nothing can be the ground, the effectual ground of justification and salvation except grace alone. I have a Catholic at UNT that meets me out there weekly to combat that, (laughs) to argue about that. At least he argues, right? Most just kind of hit and run. Well, at least he comes back. What about sola fide? This one is also important. If grace is the ground of justification, then sola fide is the means, it's the instrument. It is the modality through which salvation comes. It's through the means of faith that God justifies His people. And Luther understood that that this was the battle cry in a sense. Listen to what Luther says. Luther says, This doctrine is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without this doctrine, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. (laughs) Luther always had a way of putting things. So remarkable. I hope that, by the way, as Pastor Chris was talking about watching the Luther film tonight, I hope you go watch it as well. Black and white one is better, but the the new version, the color version, is also very good. Uh, But just to get a sense of what was at stake, I think historically God does this, um, and and this will give you a better appreciation of your own faith, your own salvation, to know why it is today that you and I are not living under popish tyranny. I mean, we, we really don't understand, folks, what the reformers came out of. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church, contrary to the way people want to paint it, was a tyrannical system of apostate religion that put many, 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 many Puritan pastors to death. 
burned them at the stake for daring to preach the Bible without the authority of the church. I mean, I don't think we fathom that. And that's exactly what took place. But so Lafide, while for Luther, the Roman Catholic teaching on justification was like a torture chamber for the soul, never being able to rest assured of justification itself, always being bound to Rome's sacramental system of indulgences and penance and other works. For Luther, the Bible's teaching on faith opened the doors of paradise. Listen to what he says. Commenting on Romans chapter 1, the verse that we read, verses 16 and 17, that says the, that, that, that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, and that God justifies us by faith, the righteous man will live by faith. Luther says this, I grasped that the justice of God is the righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, He justifies us through faith. Immediately I felt my... I felt myself to have gone through open doors into paradise, remembering who Luther was. And the film does a great job of, of showing us this. Luther, there he is. He, he's at the Basilica of Rome. He's, he's on his knees climbing the stairs of the, of, the, of the church there in Rome, hoping to do penance and to pray the, pray the prayers that he's supposed to be praying. And every, with every step, he thinks he's getting closer to God, only to find that the whole Roman system is corrupt. The bishops are sleeping with prostitutes. It's a complete sham. It's all fraudulent man-made religion. It means nothing. A certificate of indulgence means nothing. Go ahead and tear it up and throw it in the trash. It doesn't get you any closer to God. The only thing that got him closer to God was justification by faith alone. That's it. As Luther and the Reformers saw it, sola fide, stripped away boasting, just the way that Paul says in Romans 4. No ground to boast. It must, Paul says in Romans 4.16, it must be by faith so that it is according to grace. If it's not by faith, it's not by grace. But because it is by grace, it must be through faith. That's Paul's argument. It's wonderful. Therefore, boasting was included. Sinners were now liberated from the treadmill of a works-based righteousness. It granted us assurance of God's justice being satisfied and sinners being justified freely through Jesus Christ where the righteousness of God was really found. Man only needs Christ, said Luther. Oh, that's so glorious. So this logically leads us to the next sola. From sola scriptura, sola gratia and sola fide to solus Christus. Christ Alone. Christ is final. This is what I mean. The reformers, the essential components of the faith were utterly Christocentric. For the reformers like Luther and Calvin and later John Owen and the Puritans, the Bible was a Christ-centered book. Salvation was a Christ-centered work. And all other ground was sinking sand. The reformers saw man's need of justification, something that could only be answered by the righteousness that Christ can earn on our behalf. Man being destitute of any good, moral, ethical righteousness of his own desperately needs a righteousness that he does not have. Listen to Joel Beakey 
This justification by faith in Christ alone is the very heart of the gospel. Since we have no inherent righteousness that allows us to stand blameless before God, we need a righteousness outside of us. The Latin words, extranos, an alien righteousness, as Luther put it, a divinely approved righteousness that is earned for us. That is the righteousness that Christ provided. Over the centuries, and once again, just because the way the Catholic Church had shackled people's minds to their hierarchy and magisterium, many of the, many of the theology, or many of the doctrines or the teachings of the patristics and the fathers had been lost, like Eusebius, who had brilliantly come up with the theology of the threefold office of Christ. That was gone largely during the medieval dark ages. The Reformation resurrected the doctrine under Solus Christus. Under Solus Christus, one confessed that Christ was prophet, priest, and king. The Reformers taught this vigorously. And as prophet, Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the revealer of divine truth and heavenly mystery. I mean, think of a passage like Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. In Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the prophet of God par excellence, the one who has the message of heaven and reveals these secret hidden mysteries to us. Amazing. He is the truth. He speaks the truth. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, the truth is in Jesus. He is also our priest. He is our mediator priest. He intercedes for us. No more need of a priest. I tell the Catholics, whenever I'm witnessing to a Catholic, I tell them the next time a priest tells you, confess your sins to him in a confessional, tell him to confess his sins to you. Because you are as much of a priest as he is, if, if you're saved. I said I was talking to a Catholic, right? So, sure. Let's save him first, and then he becomes a priest to his God. Jesus is our priest. He is the priest. He is our high priest. Solus Christus says we only need one priest, one mediator. It's his prayer, his intercession. It is His blood, His sacrifice. It is His sympathy that we need, not the Pope's. It is His mercy, not Mary's. It is His grace, not the saints, that we need. He is also King. Christ is King. He is prophet. He is priest. He is King. And as our King, our lives are to be lived under His Lordship and sovereignty, unquestionable, unquestionable, His authority. What does Jesus say in John chapter, uh, John chapter 14, I think it is? Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Right? If Christ is your Lord, your King, your sovereign, that's actually John 6.46. John 6.46. Why do you call me Lord if you do not do what I say? 
That is because He is Lord. He is King. King of kings. And as King, He governs everything. He governs all the world. All the people in the world. It may not look like it. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? He says, It does not appear that everything is under His feet yet. But it is. It is under His feet. He is sovereign. He is ruling. He is King. He is Lord. Prophet, priest, and king, solus Christus, meant Jesus rules and governs all things. How? By His Word, by His Spirit. And as our King, He will divide His spoil and the, and the, and the spoils of His warfare with His people so that we will reign with Him in eternal glory. This is precisely what the world is blind to. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Had they understood that it was the King of glory, they would not have crucified Him. The world is blind to this, brothers and sisters. Rome, cults, Islam, current identity-less culture is incapable of seeing and savoring the work of the King. And again, Joel Beakey hits this just right. He says, quote, Today, postmodernism sees truth as wholly pluralistic and relativistic. There is no universal or absolute truth in any area of knowledge, not even religion. Postmodernists, therefore, are skeptics who fully reject any classical concept of truth. The exclusive claims of Christ and Christianity are anathema to them. They see no beauty in Christ or in His stupendous work that they should desire Him. But the Reformers also understood that what Jesus did, what Christ is, what Christianity is all about, is once again to be put beneath the banner of a theocentric worldview, of a God-centered worldview. So the last sola is sola dia gloria. Sola Dio Gloria. This system of theology was not so much new, but it was true. It may have been buried under a thousand years of papal darkness and heresy. The light of Scripture illuminated all of these things for one great purpose, one great goal, one great end. Not simply, listen now, not simply to alleviate human misery, suffering, even Christian persecution. This will come home to us. Sola Dio Gloria will come home to us as we contemplate our times, as we contemplate our trials, as we contemplate our suffering. And it seems as if there's still a little bit too much man-centeredness left within us when we begin to question God. Why is God allowing X, Y, and Z? Doesn't He understand how this affects me? Well, of course, if this was sola dio humana, <laughs> then, then, that, then we would have a point. But the point of it is, is that all of life is soli dio gloria. It is God's glory alone. That is the final basis of it all. 
That God is seeking to glorify Himself. I was, I just got back from Kentucky last night, late last night, and uh, I had a conversation with a family that was really rattled by what's going on politically, as a lot of people are right now. And thinking, you know, America is getting ready to go, be plunged into another thousand years of darkness or what, you know, whatever, you know, just doom and gloom. The apocalypse is coming because, you know, whatever, pick your, either Clinton or Trump is coming. Either way, right, it's an apocalypse for someone. And I said, you know, again, we may be tempted to think, what on earth is God doing right now? Does he understand what's happening? Where it's all going? Well, Soli Dio Gloria reminds us that, oh, excuse me, but God doesn't have any regard for Republican or Democrat. Because he really, at the end of the day, he doesn't really have a regard for America. He is not here to secure that America has a very nice, prosperous, safe landing. He is not here to ensure that America prospers ad infinitum. And why would he, right? 50 million dead unborn babies and counting. Number one exporter of pornography around the world. Why on earth would God do anything for America? So what God, what is God doing? Just wrote an article on this and was looking at a book that speaks about God being what some have called the red God. That is to say that in the next few decades, a remarkable thing, God is doing a remarkable thing and a remarkable thing has happened. But in the next few decades, sociologists have concluded that there will be around 200 million Christians in China. 200 million Christians in China. Matter of fact, Communist Party understands that the Christian church is number one threat in China. Number one threat. Because the youth are being revived. What is God doing? Soli Dio Gloria. That's what He's doing. What is God doing? He's turning the world so that right now on planet earth today versus a hundred years ago, just hundred years versus hundred years ago to today, Christianity right now as you are sitting in your seat is mainly an African Asian religion. And we think, where is God and what is He doing? When God is moving right beneath our feet and we have not even detected it. It's because we have the wrong priority. We need to be asking, what is God doing for Himself? But as long as we ask, what is God doing for us? We may miss the glory of God. We need to be asking, what is God doing to show His glory? I'll tell you what He's doing. He is saving a people for Himself. Oh, how I love the Reformers for the fact that they restore the glory of God. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. And the root means weight. Like gold that you determine the price and value of it by its weight. The glory of God is weighty. And invaluable. And the glory of God also is the end for which everything exists. And the reformers understood this. Again, Joel Beeky says, in both testaments of the Bible, the word glory means the display of excellence and praiseworthiness, as well as 
the response of honor and adoration to this display. God's glory is the beauty of His manifold perfections as well as the awesome radiance that breaks forth from those perfections. His moral excellence of character shines forth in greatness and worth in His acts of creation, providence, and redemption. Let me end this study of Reformed theology, brief study, where mine began. In 1996, I picked up a tiny little booklet by Jonathan Edwards entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was by reading Edwards that the Lord opened to me a a vision and a view of God that was much greater than anything I could have ever conceived of, but few theologians than Edwards have really spent a lifetime contemplating and expounding and digging into the glory of God like Edwards. Listen to what Edwards says. The greatest moments of my life have not been those that have concerned my own salvation, but those when I have been carried into communion and beheld the beauty of God and desired His glory. I rejoice and I yearn to be emptied and annihilated of self in order that I may be filled with the glory of God and Christ. And then he says, alone. Spoken like a true reformer. I pray, I always have, that as I teach and preach and whoever teaches and preaches in our church and as long as we uphold the reformed faith, which our church is not ever, as long as I have anything to say about it, ever moving from that epicenter of theological uh, uh, system, 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 you know what I mean, system. <laughs> We're never moving from that system. We're never going to something else. Uh, Brothers and sisters, listen, I've seen everything else that's out there. You know what it is? Chaff. It's weak and superficial. I mean, let's get down to business. Reformed theology shows us and gives us a vision of a big God, of a transcendent and majestic God that the the, the anthropocentric expressions of Christianity can never, ever achieve. Never. You know, I was listening to Christian radio the other day. <laughs> I don't listen to it hardly ever, but I was listening to it, and I was listening to the songs. Every song, by the way, sounded like I was listening to a U2 uh, album. Anyway, but all the songs were just, I love you, and I long for you, and I'm passionate for you, and it's just all describing the psychological, emotional condition of the worshiper above everything else. I thought, you know, charismatics sit in churches screaming and yelling, worshiping as loud as they can, screaming, pondering deep into the worship services of the church, pondering and soaking, trying to soak it all in for one fundamental reason, seeking experience after experience after experience so that hopefully they will find the answer to one simple question, I believe. And that is this, does Jesus love me? And all they needed to do 
was divorce their emotions for a second and look at the truth and understand you don't need to shout and holler and scream for that. If you just look at the cross, the cross answers that question emphatically so that we never, ever have to ask ourselves, is Christ for me? You want to know if Christ is for you, if Christ loves you? You want to know if Christ is assuring you of His love for you? Reformed theology says, it's in the Word of God. Just read it. It's right there on the page. That's why we have the Scripture. We don't have the Scripture so that we can turn a blind eye to the Scripture and now go to another captivity of emotionalism (laughs) where we have supernatural divine light right here where all the answers are found. And so I hope and pray that this, not that there's not, you know, I know pastors always die the death of a thousand qualifications, but not that there's not experience, not that there's not emotion, not that there's not tears and weeping and, and yearning and seeking, of course. But what the Reformation did is it, it liberated every single person who's a believer in this room to have the light in their hands. To know for certain what God has said. How God thinks. This is the mind of God revealed to... This is what Calvin said. The Father speaking to His children. I hope and pray we will always hear the Father's voice in His Word. Let's pray. Father, Lord, may may the doctrines of the Reformation continue to take root in our church. I sincerely ask, Lord, that You would renew our, our thinking, our minds so that we will always be found in that stream of Reformed theology, however much we may disagree on tertiary issues, that we would never let go of these ten canons of truth that are so liberating and glorious to behold, and in them we behold something of your own glory as well. I pray you would strengthen our church and encourage our hearts with these truths. What a wonderful, remarkable and glorious work of history that you accomplished in the Reformation. Help us as Reformed people to take the weighty truths of Reformed theology and to apply them practically every day to our lives. Let it not be that we just are fascinated by Reformed ideas. Let it not be that we are just all head, no heart, no hands. Give us a balance that only you can produce by the power of your Spirit. May may we be pleasing to you in these things, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.